Hello, this week we're looking at Venezuela, the USA, Britain, and the African Union, as well as a closer look at supranational entities like the European Union. Welcome back to the Envoy podcast for the 23rd of March, 2018. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. In this week's roundup, we're going to be looking at Venezuela's economic collapse and its effect on its neighbors, President Trump signaling tariffs on Chinese imports totaling more than 50 billion US dollars, a new transition agreement between Britain and the European Union, and the African Union's attempt to create a free trade agreement across the African continent. Considering the European and African unions are in the news this week, I thought I'd take some time to have a closer look and explain how they work and what the benefits and cons are to the nations involved. Now to this week's roundup. First up is Venezuela. Unfortunately, in the recent past, Venezuela has been suffering from effectively an economic meltdown. The socialist economic policies of Venezuela that were focused on the petrochemical sector and using the profits from that to subsidize the rest of the economy and raise living standards among people has meant that the economy was far too focused on that one sector and wasn't properly diversified. That means when oil prices were low, which we have discussed in earlier podcasts due to uh, Saudi and other government attempts to try and block out U.S. shale production, their economy suffered heavily and they didn't have a way to turn this around. The economy fell into recession and the socialist government, in an attempt to try and um, maintain popular support, started increasing the minimum wage and food subsidies. But because the underlying economy wasn't there to support it, it effectively became a, a money printing program. Inflation has skyrocketed. It's, it's astronomical, you know, over a thousand percent. This has been driven in part by a 58% increase in the minimum wage alongside a 67% increase in food subsidies, which means for someone like that, they will be receiving 1,307,646 Bolivias uh, a month, which at current exchange rates is worth about six US dollars. That's the uh, black market exchange rate as the official exchange rate set by the government is too high for the market to bear. And this, this printing of money to throw at people to, uh, to try and keep them happy has just caused hyperinflation as there's no underlying economy to support those wage increases. This has resulted in effectively economic collapse in many cases and a real serious humanitarian problem as the lack of food has been referred to by the population as the Maduro diet, uh, named after President Nicolas Maduro, because people are suffering heavily and they can't even get uh, enough food to eat to, to survive week to week. This has resulted in the foreign policy sphere, uh, an estimated 600,000 Venezuelans uh, walking to Colombia, basically, and trying to cross the border, which obviously is something that the Colombian government wasn't prepared for. And they're trying to tighten controls to restrict this, uh, this border movement as the resulting tensions between locals and the migrants uh, is, is causing additional crime problems. And it's a major problem for the region for the near future as the ongoing civil strife within the country means there's no uh, central government authority with legitimacy to try and help kickstart the economy and turn it around. If this continues, the effects on the region will increase and there may be a real migrant crisis uh, within uh, South America in the near future. Now to President Trump's announced tariffs on Chinese imports. Very, very recently, President Trump has announced that he has instructed Robert Lighthizer, the trade representative of the US, which you might remember from a previous podcast where we talked about uh, where he was a bit of a trade warrior and, and quite good at extracting concessions from other countries, 
has been instructed by Trump to impose tariffs on over 50 billion US dollars worth of Chinese imports into America. China has hit back with a tariff on $3 billion worth of US imports, including pork, fruit, and wine. This shows that China will respond, but that it would prefer to not engage in a trade war. And so it's trying to not escalate the situation further. However, in negotiations, a tolerance for economic pain or risk is a significant factor. And the side that is unwilling to endure the most relative punishment will likely see to the demands of the other party first. So China's showing a preference to try and maintain trade so that it can stabilize its own economy and not suffer from a trade war may mean that it will have to concede to American uh, demands rather than risk going to the open trade war, whereas Trump seems uh, far more inclined to engage in a trade war as it may have domestic benefits in terms of uh, elections and appearing to be tough on China. Now, the actual fundamental impact of these tariffs are probably going to be quite low as it's been announced with a consultation period where businesses and lobby groups in America will probably water down the tariffs further. And the Oxford Economics Group has run a simulation which saw Chinese growth reduced by a single 0.1 percentage point uh, this year and even smaller impact on the US economy. So it's more of a warning shot than an actual trade war, but it's the beginning of a potential escalation over time. Now, in addition to Trump's target uh, of the $375 billion trade deficit with China, they're also looking at the intellectual property that has been lost over time. For a long time in China, if you were a foreign business trying to invest there or operate in the country and have access to its economic fruits and its uh, domestic market, part of the deal would be that you would hand over technology and intellectual property to the local businesses and that, that you would be dealing with there. And this was a way for the Chinese government to gain access very quickly to a whole bunch of technology so they could leap forward uh, much more quickly than it had to do all this research natively on its own. So for foreign businesses, they've given away their competitive advantage, which was this technology that would get them ahead of their competitors uh, to China. And the resulting potential loss of income from that means that the Trump administration is also going after intellectual property theft, uh, as they call it, or intellectual property laws in China. In what is known as Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 in the U.S. empowers Robert Lighthizer to go after China and to attempt to rectify this uh, imbalance in intellectual property laws and maybe also go to the World Trade Organization, which is kind of a, a global organization which most countries have signed up to, um, to make a complaint about China there. And so this is the potential beginning of a trade war where either countries decide to fight back and engage in the tit-for-tat retaliation that escalates over time until someone basically blinks and gives in or they just tough it out and take the economic hit, or countries seeing this will decide it's better to get in early and try and make a deal now rather than try and make a deal after suffering a significant economic strain from uh, a very increased and escalated trade war. It also looks like the Trump administration has gone a little bit smarter, perhaps, in its tariffs, as they have announced a pause on their steel and aluminium tariffs on the European Union, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, Mexico, and South Korea. Now, these are all important economies in the world, and a lot of them are allies of the US. And so what we discussed in previous podcasts, where it would be smarter to try and lock in your friends, especially important partners such as Canada and Mexico, which account for a significant amount of US trade. And that way, 
the, the US economy won't suffer from retaliation from those countries and it'll give it more room and more leverage over the other countries where it's more targeted in its approach rather than just a, a whole worldwide tariff being set up. We'll keep an eye on this and bring you any major updates in the future. Now to Britain and the EU, where the so-called Brexit agreement has basically been stalled for a long time, but we've recently uh, seen a transition agreement come out, which has somewhat kicked the can down the road in terms of an actual exit from the European Union, but is a positive and constructive step. Effectively, Britain is going to stay inside the EU's uh, collective trade and custom rules until 2021. However, in the meantime, it is allowed now to engage in uh, trade negotiations and prepare itself for when that uh, period of regulation is dropped, they can then replace those with their own trade agreements around the world. Normally in the European Union, it's illegal for any country to set its own individual trade policy or, or tariff or free trade agreements. All negotiations have to go through the EU. And the idea is to create a collective bargaining approach where none of the countries are undermined by the other doing deals behind their back. However, this agreement allows Britain to do so and really is just an acceptance of the practical reality that Britain has already been engaging in talks with countries around the world, preparing themselves for the inevitable withdrawal from the EU, uh, especially with the US, they've been uh, engaging in, uh, in behind closed doors discussions. And so while this would potentially be considered illegal based on what they're actually doing, which we don't know the specifics of, as Britain has already been engaging in secret talks, this was already going on. And so it made sense part of any transition to basically accept the inevitable. However, Britain is still going to be paying into the EU budget in the meantime, and also will abide by the EU's Court of Justice. And so while they've been given this um, free ticket to start preparing their own trade um, with the rest of the world, they're still basically still integrated with the EU, but they won't have any voting rights, uh, except for a couple small issues where they might be consulted on. This is effectively more of a softer Brexit, as it's been referred to, something that is less harsh and immediate and is more of a kicking the can down the road until they can come to a, a full agreement. There's still various issues they need to deal with, um, one of those being the Northern Ireland border with the Republic of Ireland and freedom of movement there, as some people would still like to be able to cross that border without creating a, a hard border and potentially uh, impacting on the relations between locals there where they would become more isolated from each other. But until these are resolved, they'll be continuing on this approach of a transition period until 2021. Now into a different union, the African Union. The African Union isn't as politically and economically integrated as the European Union is, but it is taking steps towards that. There has been recently announced a African Continental Free Trade Area, also known as the CFTA. Leaders of 44 countries have signed the deal, and in the near future, they will go to the national parliaments and, and have that deal ratified so that they'll create a free trade area within Africa where goods are not heavily tariffed, people are able to move more freely, uh, starting a move towards that European model. There are still a few stumbling blocks. 10 countries, including Nigeria, refuse to sign. The Nigerian economy is the largest in all of Africa. The Nigerian business community and trade unions were concerned about some of the details, particularly the unions were worried about workers from other countries taking their union members' jobs. There is a plan to slowly make the African Union into the European Union and creating a, first a customs union, then a common market, and then maybe even a single currency like the EU. And we'll be going into those terms in our deeper dive. 
While the stumbling blocks still remain, the African Union Commission head, Moussa Faki Mahamat, said that it was a glorious challenge and that they were attempting to try and circumvent it and achieve their long-term goals. And while there's a political African Union, this would be the first real big economic step to slowly integrating the continent into one kind of supranational economic uh, union. We'll keep you updated with any new details that come up in the future. That's it for this week's roundup. Now onto this week's deeper dive, and considering the African Union and the European Union was in the news this week, I thought we might have a, a closer look at the impact of a political and economic union and just give a bit of background and how it works, some, some definitions so people can understand how these huge supranational bodies actually work. So we'll start with that, that word su supranational. What does that mean? It basically means above other nations and then including other nations in one body that has a degree of governance over all of them and you're ceding some of your effective sovereignty or freedom to choose how you act in the world to a greater body that is going to adjudicate between all the nations involved. Now, this is something that a nationalist generally doesn't like to do, as nationalists prefer to have their country run by the people themselves within that country and don't like decisions being made about uh, that country happening in other nations. Uh, it's the same reason why countries that even aren't in these kind of unions uh, get really upset if other uh, countries meddle in with their internal affairs. And you see that with people in Russia accusing the US of fomenting um, discontent inside their country, or, or Britain or the US um, being considered uh, possible targets of uh, foreign interference in their elections. Generally, nationalists don't like other people meddling with their country. And these nationalist forces generally make it difficult for these supranational organizations to exist. As we talked about in the very, very first Envoy podcast, however, the European Union had a special circumstance where in the Cold War it had a, uh, an enemy that the, all the Western countries were aligned against, uh, the Soviet Union, and they also had uh, American forces in those countries in the West that meant none of them could fight each other, and it meant that they didn't have to worry about each other so much and created a, an area where things were peaceful and there was, wasn't a much military, political competition between those countries gave them a chance to form the European Union over time and the idea of solidarity between all Europeans. Now what's interesting about the African Union is it doesn't have this same set of fundamentals and so many would expect that it would be very difficult to bring countries together unless they had a sort of a unifying force behind them that were all directing them in the same direction against an external foe or they, they had um, an artificial hierarchy imposed by another country, keeping them all safe so they didn't have to worry about each other. And so if the African Union succeeded in getting as far as the European Union has, that would discredit this theory that you need artificial hierarchy imposed by uh, another nation or and or a, another nation or group of nations providing a threat that had forced a, a group to band together for mutual support. So we've talked about the general idea of what a supranational body is and the kind of forces that are generally needed at work to bring countries together and form one. Now we're going to discuss what the what a political and economic union are like, because those are kind of two different things. On the political side, there is, in the European Union's case, a push for a particular ideological position, which is uh, liberal democracy, which is basically what, what most Western countries have. What I mean by liberal is not uh, left wing of policy, um, what I mean by liberal as in liberalism, classical liberalism, this idea that the individual is free to act how they like in society, 
there are uh, property rights, people's rights are protected, there is a judicial system you can go through to have your rights seen to and to also determine if anyone has wronged you to gain reparations of some kind and restitution. And the democratic part of liberal democratic is the idea that there are free and fair elections that represent the people's will. And so in the European Union, there's a, on the one hand, there's this promotion of the liberal democratic state, this idea that um, you can have a peaceful, rights-respecting country that allows people to elect based on basically a majority or some kind of electoral process that's seen as uh, free and fair. And the, the other political impact is the unifying of rules in terms of people moving about in countries, aligning regulations, having uh, common courts sometimes. For instance, in the European Union, if you go to your highest court in your country, such as the High Court in Australia, and your case is unsuccessful, there's a chance that you might be able to escalate it to the European Court of Justice. And this idea that there's a court above a national court that you can go to that might be able to put down a sentence that then the national courts will then have to abide by is another important part of what a political union can bring about. The European Union has been seen politically as being quite successful as after the end of the Cold War, there was this spread of, of liberal democracy replacing communist governments in the uh, east of Europe and in the Balkans. Now, on the economic side of things, there are kind of three general ideas. Uh, first is a, a customs union, this idea that all countries in this group will agree to apply the same tariffs to goods from outside that union. The second is like a, a single market. And so the idea that all the barriers between countries within that union are effectively eliminated or reduced so that uh, goods, services, capital, and people can move freely with inside that market. And the last is the idea of a single currency and that nations will cede control of their own uh, printing presses for their currency and that one governing body will, will oversee the monetary policy for everyone. The only problem with handing over your printing press is that you no longer have control over your uh, money supply. And so what might be good for one country in terms of monetary policy might be bad for you. And thus, we've seen that tension arise where uh, Greece, as economy, might want to have its currency very, very low so that it can try and have make its products cheap on the world stage and, and sell them to create money. But other countries might want it higher. And so there's this disconnect between what countries want. And it's caused the, the crisis in, in the EU to exacerbate significantly. This is something the African Union is going to have to deal with in the near future. Hopefully giving you a short and quick uh, understanding of how these unions work. And we'll go into greater detail in the near future. This has been the Envoy podcast. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us at envoyuwa at gmail.com or our website, envoyfpa.org. As always, if you have any questions or queries or requests, please send them to us at email and we'd love to hear from you. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw, and we'll be coming back with new news next week. Mm -hmm.